I know that, um, especially since he's not here to, since he's not here to confer with me, I, I would say that most people have an ongoing joke about Russell Howard being very long-winded. Uh, he himself makes that joke. But there are a couple of topics that I could probably uh, beat him at in, in terms of just talking for hours and hours. Um, anything Lord of the Rings based, which he might be able to tie me on that because he's as big of a fan of Lord of the Rings and Tolkien as I am. Um, Star Wars stuff, uh, I could talk for hours and hours. But then, uh, as Mark mentioned, anything, anything biology related, especially the creation evolution topic. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, we're on, SFCA is on spring break right now. Next week starts the fourth quarter. And from the beginning of next week until the end of the year, which is in June, I'm gonna be pretty much talking nothing about, nothing except evolution, creation, biblical creation. That entire topic takes up a quarter. Uh, because it's that important to me, um, and since the biology textbook spends multiple chapters talking about evolution, I figure that I want to give that topic enough time uh, for the students. So that's the, it's the longest continuous type of topic that I teach uh, during the school year. So I definitely, I could take the whole year if I wanted to, but I have to cram it into one quarter. And so when, uh, when Mark told me about tonight, uh, he said, you need to stick to this narrow window of, of topic, otherwise I could go off on a million tangents. Uh, he's got some hard objects to throw at me in case I start veering off course. Um, now I know last week, um, Russell mentioned that he was at his old church. He put people on the spot in terms of the Ten Commandments. Was anybody here last week? All right. Now I'm not going to do what he says he did, but I would like to see if anybody could do this just to kind of introduce us to the topics that we're going to be discussing the Holy Spirit's role in creation. Even though we've just gone over this probably a few weeks ago in, in uh, worship service, can anybody give me the rundown of what happened on each day of creation? All right, so light would be day one, okay? Uh, usually everybody gets light, but there, we'll come back. There was something else created. It wasn't specifically mentioned, but it, was, it actually was specifically mentioned, just kind of uh, off topic. But the earth itself was also created on day one. It, it's inferred in verse two. Um, it doesn't specifically say uh, the, way, the way the Bible says, and God created light. All right, what about day two? That's usually the, the one people really don't know about. Separation of the firmament, uh, which an easier way to, to say that is just the atmosphere. That's, that's pretty much what is going on there. So the, the waters were separated from the water. So we have the atmosphere being created on day two. What about day three? All right. Day, th day three, not, not sun, moon, and stars yet. Day three is dry land and plants. So even though the earth was created on day one, um, it was just a ball of water, as we'll see. We're going to get into that, uh, into those verses in a minute. Uh, so dry land didn't exist until uh, day three. And then once dry land was created, then the plants were created as well. Day four is the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, basically, I just say outer space stuff. Anything that exists in outer space, you know, all the, if, if you're into that kind of thing, nebulae, uh, dust, you know, cosmic dust, whatever, whatever is in outer space, um, that was created on day four. Day five. Certain categories of animals based on where they, where they hang out most of the time. So we have aquatic and flying creatures created on day five. Um, and then day six, land creatures and man. So tonight we're pretty much gonna be hanging around just day one and a little bit also in day six. Since we're, we're gonna try to just uh, zero in on the Holy Spirit's role in the creation. All right, so we are gonna be in Genesis chapter one, verses one and two. Would anybody like to read those verses for me? I will. Okay. 
2? Yes, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. Thank you. That's my mom, by the way. She's not going to leave me hanging. All right, so we're going to jump right in to the verses here. So focus on verse 1 first. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's probably an easy one to memorize. Uh, there's not much there. And I want to stress that this verse is very much a summary statement. Uh, we're going to get into some of the, uh, some of the Hebrew uh, a little bit later on here uh, when dealing with, with a particular issue. But this is a summary statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what's interesting about this is that with this one sentence, we see that God is creating time, space, and matter in this one statement. Again, this is a summary statement of the entire creation event that lasts six days. But when we say in the beginning, when God's, when God's word says in the beginning, that means that's the beginning of time. It's kind of hard for us to wrap our heads around this, but time is a created thing. And so in the beginning, God created time. Space, uh, the, the word here that's used when, when, it, when the Bible says the heavens, samayim is the Hebrew word there, and that actually has a dual meaning. It means not only the atmosphere and, and, and outer space, but also um, the atmosphere, but also like the heaven, you know, where, where the angels dwell and things like that. So there's kind of a dual meaning there. Um, to say, you know, space, when we, when we talk about time, space, and matter, those, the reason why I'm pointing those out is because those are the three primary elements of existence, right? We exist in time. We exist in three-dimensional space, and obviously our planet is in outer space. And then everything that exists, uh, in, in the physical world at least, is made out of matter. And so we can kind of see here, this isn't, this isn't necessarily what this verse is trying to do for us, but it's kind of just a fun little tidbit where we can see the mention of these three things in this first summary statement. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's, there's a particular aspect of this creation that we need to, to camp out on here before we really get to talking about the Holy Spirit. And that is the, the manner in which uh, everything was created. Prior to Genesis 1, absolutely nothing but God himself existed. And again, this is so difficult for us to wrap our head around because we can't imagine time not existing. We can't imagine space not existing or matter not existing. God created everything. The, the, the term here is creation ex nihilo. And this, this word nihilo comes from the root, the same root that we get nihilism. If you're familiar with that philosophy where basically nothing matters, everything is pointless. Uh, nihilism, nothing. So ex nihilo means there was nothing and God created everything from that. So another way to say this is not only that God created stuff, but he created the stuff that stuff is made out of. Right? So again, very difficult for us to wrap our heads around. Um, he, he didn't just make Rocks. He didn't just make plants. He made the atoms that you make these things out of. And he also made the energy that these things use to function. So everything that we understand about the, the universe, God made from nothing. Okay? So does anybody, does anybody in here make, like to make food from scratch? So like... Anybody like to make, so who's made pasta, but like actually made it from scratch, not store-bought? All right, you have, okay. Now that's impressive, I believe that's impressive, but did you make, what do you make it out of flour, right? Did you make the flour? I mean, God, and I'm not, I'm not talking about growing it and harvesting it, I, make, I mean made the organism that was able to make the flour, like everything. God made everything. And, and another way to look at this is to say that man can make, but only God can create. And we can see that in the Hebrew word that is used in Genesis. The Hebrew word bara means to create. And this word actually is only used in reference to God. 
It, bara is not, a, is not a word that is used when describing man's creative ability. Only God. Um, because he is the only one that can truly create. Uh, I believe, I, I can't remember when it was, but on one of the Sunday messages that, that Russell was, was speaking, uh, he used a Tolkien reference when he said that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien would, would mention that the, the, the beings within his, uh, within his fantasy were sub-creators, meaning that the, the, the God in that universe made the stuff and then he gave his pinnacle creation the ability to make stuff out of that stuff. And that's kind of where we sit. You know, if you're an artist, if you're a chef, if you're whatever, whatever talent you have to create, you take raw materials that God has created. You can't make the raw materials yourself. Uh, so we are sub-creators and only God can truly create. So that's, this, that's the ex nihilo concept that we're looking at here. All right, so looking at the, the verse here, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. So we're, we're moving into uh, verse two. And I, and I wanna point out another thing here that we may end up falling victim to this kind of way of thinking. When you read this, sometimes people take this to mean that, that there was chaos and that God was ordering the chaos. That idea is actually not what the Bible is teaching. Chaos, I would argue chaos did not exist prior to creation. Because if you have chaos, that means there has to be something to be chaotic. Right? What's, what, is, what is chaos? If nothing exists, you can't have chaos. The reason why I want to mention this, because there are a lot of pagan religions that, uh, unlike what the, the, the Israelites would have been believing, there are a lot of pagan religions that believe that, that there is this struggle between good and evil, uh, light and dark, good and evil, um, and, and order and chaos and all that. And, and I, don't want, I don't want us to fall into thinking that that is how God created. God is not struggling for anything. He created the universe and he has complete and utter control over the universe. So I wanna, I wanna point that out when we start talking about the Holy Spirit's active role, specifically mentioned in the Bible here, what the Holy Spirit is doing. I wanna just point out that God did not have to come on the scene and battle chaos to create what he did. He, he created everything and was in complete control the entire time. Now, um, I know that, that it's been mentioned that we're, those of us that are teaching are kind of following, uh, kind of following a guideline. Uh, we're following uh, R.C. Sproul's book, The Mystery of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I'm in chapter five of this, of this uh, particular book, focusing on the Holy Spirit and creation. Now, I said I gotta, I gotta stay, I gotta stay in my lane with this. I can't go too far off talking about uh, just creation in general and the various topics that apply to that. However, in a 13-page chapter, Sproul takes about two full pages to talk about this subject. So I feel like I'm, I'm warranted to. Uh, that, that gives me permission, basically. I can now talk about this subject because he spends a good chunk of time in his own chapter uh, talking about this. And that is the gap theory. This was mentioned the very first week that uh, the, the main uh, sermon going into the Genesis uh, series, uh, Russell talked about this for a little bit. And I wanna talk about it a little bit more, especially because it's brought up here. Because it relates to these two verses that we're looking at. We've read, we read verse one and we read verse two. Um, and so I think Sproul brings it up because there is a common uh, fallacy, misconception about these verses. So we read this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. The reason why I separated those two is because the, what the gap theory teaches is that in between verse one and two, there are millions and billions of years that elapsed during this time. Now there's a lot of different flavors of the gap theory, but the most prominent one is the one that teaches, this isn't just time that nothing was happening. 
during this time, you would actually have uh, a, a whole range of organisms that were living during this time, animal animals and plants and things like that. Uh, gap theorists would believe that this is the time during which the dinosaurs would have uh, roamed the earth. You also would have had some type of pre, what they call a pre-Adamic um, civilization, pre-Adam, civilization of humans or something like them. Uh, during this time, Satan would have fallen. Lucifer, the, the God's number one angel, would have fallen uh, during this time and, and, and brought a third of the angels in rebellion with him. And so all of this, uh, all of these events would be taking place during this gap of millions and billions of years. The time has been, you know, how long it, how long it is, it's kind of cha changed and shifted uh, primarily because of what spawned this whole concept to begin with. Has anybody prior to Russell's sermon a couple weeks ago heard of the gap theory? All right, so a handful of you have. Um, the first semester that I taught is Genesis history, I asked the same question and I was actually kind of relieved that the none of the people in my class had heard of it, which is probably a good thing um, because this is not consistent with uh, God's word. And so I want to camp out here just for a few minutes and, and look at this. So the history of the gap theory, it's it was first proposed by Thomas Chalmers in 1814. And it was from a, a, um, a sermon that he was giving that somebody was writing down and, and recorded basically what was mentioned in the sermon. Now I've, I've seen a, another uh, source say that this idea maybe even originated back in the 15 and 1600s from uh, an individual called Episcopius. But usually the person that I've heard uh, given credit for this concept was Thomas Chalmers. It was popularized even more in the 1920s, I guess, by the Schofield Study Bible. Has anybody had a Schofield Study Bible? All right, a couple of you. So Chalmers mentions this in 1814, and then it pretty much is, is made really popular in, uh, from the Schofield Study Bible. The purpose of the gap theory, and, and this is very important, this was not something that was born out of just interpreting scripture on the basis of scripture alone. The purpose of this idea was to try to reconcile or align the Bible with secular geological timescales. Secular here meaning from individuals who are not Christian. Uh, either their worldview does not align with the Christian worldview, uh, they may even be hostile to the Christian worldview. And in fact, the, the impetus for this was uh, there was actually prior to, prior to the 1800s, if you went back in time and you, you surveyed geologists in the 16 and 1700s, by and large, most of them would have been what we call scriptural geologists. They believed that the geological phenomena that we see around us are the result of Noah's flood. And so they were adhering to the biblical account. They were full-on geologists, but they interpreted the geology around us in light of God's word. In the 1800s, there was a shift in, the, uh, in that group, and, and geologists became more and more secular. As the scriptural geologists retired or died out, they were replaced with geologists that had uh, no loyalty, no love even for Christianity, the Bible, or the church. In fact, uh, there was one geologist that, that mentioned specifically in, in a letter he wrote that it is his desired wish to free science from Moses, meaning the majority of scientists, actually I'd say vast majority, were all Christians. When, when science as we know it was, was created, uh, it was created out of Christian philosophy. And that's, that's an entire Bible study in and of itself. So this was an attempt by theologians who were intimidated by these secular scientists coming up, coming up with these, these geological dates and saying the science is solid, the, the earth is millions of years old, and, and these, um, these uh, pastors didn't necessarily know what to do with that. And so they said, well, maybe we can just kind of you know, pry those millions of years between these verses. And, and that could then mean we don't have to really do, any, uh, do anything with the Bible. We can just squeeze this 
in there, and we've now aligned the Bible with this, uh, this solid science. But unfortunately, um, when you do something like that, you're compromising. Uh, this, is, this is very much a compromise theory. And actually, it's probably not, it shouldn't even be considered a compromise theory, because when you compromise, usually both parties meet in the middle. The, the secular geologists, secular scientists, they did not meet in the middle. They stood their ground, and it was the theologians that moved to align. Whenever you do that, and you sacrifice God's word for something like that, it is a, it is a huge problem. Now, this is not a rabbit that I can chase. All right, I'm not going to be able to chase any rabbits, as Russell likes to say. I, I just point at them and say, there they are. Go chase them yourselves. If this is a topic that you find interesting, I'm going to reference you to this gentleman right here, Dr. Terry Mortensen. If you go on YouTube or just go online and you type his name in, uh, he did his PhD on the history of geology as a science. And um, many of the videos you find on him are probably a decade or so old, but he does a great job of just outlining the scientists that, that you would have seen going from the 1700s, moving into the 1800s, and he does just a great job in some of his talks online about explaining how did we go from being ba basically the sciences in general, but specifically geology being founded on God's word to completely secular. And so if that's a topic that interests you, uh, it's more history than it is, he's not necessarily going to get into any of the science itself. It's more history than it is anything else. Now, I, I, don't, I don't have time to really get into that, but I do want to look at the grammatical justification that gap theorists give, uh, at least what they're trying to argue from a grammar point of view. Because if you, if you mention what I did to somebody who believes in the gap theory and say, this was done to align with secular geology, they would argue, no, 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 this, it's, it's grammatically consistent with the Bible. Uh, I want to go over some of those arguments. So here I have verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Does anybody's translation have a word before the earth? Okay. And? What else? Now? Any others? Just and and now. That's primarily what I've found. Um, most translations, in fact, I, I'm going from the NASB, the 1995 NASB, New, New American Standard Bible. My, my translation obviously doesn't put anything there. But it's, the, it's these two words that, we, that the gap theorists will say. This is justification to imply that there was a passage of time from verse 1 to verse 2. So... That's it. The, the, the translation from the Hebrew into a word now, as well as sometimes and. Okay. Also, the words formless and void. There are certain ways that you can translate formless and void from Hebrew into English uh, that we'll look at. And, and they would say that these two, two possible, these words can be translated in such a way to imply that there was something that was destroyed. So if you come upon a house that looks like a bomb went off, right, and it, you see the destruction and the desolation, that's what they think that those two words are implying when, when we're reading verse 2 here. The earth was, so instead of saying the earth was formless and void, the earth was desolate and wasted or destro destroyed is the implication. And so that's the grammar. Because it, if you look anywhere else in the Bible, nowhere else in God's word, is there any hint at a period of time of millions and billions of years between verse 1 and verse 2? And I would, I would imagine that most of you, if you've read through those verses, just reading them, it doesn't automatically make itself obvious. You read, it just seems like this, then this. But that's their grammatical justification. So let's look at these, these words. First, we're going to look at the earth. Um, this, and we are going to dive into some Hebrew here. So... Um, hopefully that's exciting for you. It's exciting for me, even though I'm not a Hebrew scholar. So we have the earth, which here is veha eretz, even though there's a W there. That's a, that's a vav, which we'll get into in a minute. So that's the word that, that we see when we look at the earth in Hebrew. The word for formless is tohu, and then and void is wabohu. 
And so we're going to camp out on these words here to make sure that we truly understand what they're trying to say. I'm going to start with the, the earth part. Veha edits. Does everybody know the direction that Hebrew is written? Correct, right to left, right? So this W or this Vav Hebrew word that I have over on the left in English is actually far over there on the right. That's the first letter in this statement here. And it's this letter that we're going to camp out on. Now I want to I take a quick minute to encourage you guys. This is clearly based on what Mark said about my history. I am not a Hebrew scholar by, by training. I am a biologist and a marine biologist by, by schooling at least. Um, and I want to take this moment to encourage all of you. If you get into a Bible study, uh, one of my pet peeves is when people are doing a ser- either a sermon or a Bible study, and they, they say, and I'm not going to scare you with, with big words. I'm not going to scare you with technical terms. And I'm always sitting in the audience like, why? Do it. Like, what's, what's the worst that can happen? Um, I say, dive in. Get out of your comfort zone. Right? We are reading a book that was written over a course of thousands of years, thousands of years ago in a different culture. You're going to have to do some homework if you don't want to be led uh, astray on this. Because otherwise, you're just trusting whoever translated the Bible to tell you what it's saying. So I say, you know, put your Berean britches on and, and get going. It's, it's perfectly fine to get, into, get out of your comfort zone, especially with, you know, usually I'm talking about science, and people usually say, well, I'm not a scientist. So what? There's enough resources out there at, at your fingertips now that you can dive into this. So I would encourage all of you guys to get to, to dive in deep. And, and by the way, what I'm getting ready to talk about, if this kind of thing fascinates you, I've got uh, something, again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I had to look this up myself. And so I have the resource that I pulled this from. It is a bit of a combination of a foreign language and then just language structure in general, which wasn't my a cup of tea in, in high school anyway. Um, but still, to understand what this is really saying, we have to get into the, the Hebrew just a little bit. So this word vav, right, this letter vav, whenever it's attached to a verb, it's generally used to show a sequence of events. And this, and that. So if you read the rest of Genesis chapter 1, we see, uh, and God said, and God said, and God said. Now in Hebrew, it's actually, and said God. So the said is the verb there. And said God, and said God, and said God. So that, starting from verse 2, moving forward, that's uh, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. But here in, in uh, verse 2, it's attached to a non-verb. It is and, or vav, the earth. In this case, it's a noun. Whenever it's used in that way, it is generally used to kind of explain a little bit more what happened. So like I said at the beginning, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's a summary statement. When we start here in verse 2, and the earth was formless and void, this is the Holy Spirit kind of going back and saying, okay, well, let me tell you how God created the, the heavens and the earth. So it is a, is, there's a pause here, and this, is, this technical term for this is, is a vav disjunctive. And so what that means is that we're not, it's not that God created the heavens and the earth, then the earth became destroyed. That's not what it is implying at all when you look at the Hebrew. Now, I'm actually going to skip to void first because that's the easy one. Void really only has two, at least in the NASB translation, two different ways that it's translated in the rest of Scripture. All right, bohu is either emptiness or void. It also mentions wasteland up there, but that's pretty straightforward and self-explanatory. Um, we'll come back to the wasteland in a minute. So void isn't that challenging, but when we do the other one, formless, tohu, there are about nine different ways that this Hebrew word is translated elsewhere in the Bible. We've got meaningless, futile, formless, empty, nothing, chaos, desolation, confusion, and waste. So when the gap theorists come along and say, see, it can be translated as waste. It is elsewhere in the Bible. So that shows us that something was wasted, something was destroyed. And, and you look at all these different ways it's translated, it can seem a bit confusing. But how do we, when, when words have more than one meaning, how do we determine the proper meaning? Context. Context. I'd say the lack of this one thing is what leads most people 
down the wrong path when reading the Bible. Think about this. We're talking about the Holy Spirit in creation, the Holy Spirit's role in creation. Who is writing the Bible? The Holy Spirit, through the hands of a human author. So if anybody knows what's going on, it's the Holy Spirit who is, tra who is trying to convey this, this information. And like I said, if you just sat down and read this without anybody else whispering in your ear what it really means, it is very clear that it is just a sequence, a series of events telling one story, not something with a bunch of millions and billions of years in between and other events that we just have no record of anywhere else. If the Holy Spirit is writing this from beginning to end through different human authors, and there's no mention of this period of gap in between, then the context, as well as the grammar that we see, should compel us to treat this as one event. There's also a couple of theological problems. Apart from grammatical problems, there's theological problems. First of all, we have death before sin. Russell mentioned this uh, in his sermon series. Right? If all of, this, all of these living things were destroyed, that means things died. And especially if there was some kind of human-like race before, they all died. Well, when does the Bible say that death came into the world? When Adam sinned. What about all these other people? Also, one of the reasons why they say that the earth was destroyed was because Satan was, had fallen during that time and he started messing around with creation and the creation becomes so corrupt because of Satan, this was somehow punishment for Satan as well as these creatures. Well, guess what? Satan survived. Spoiler alert. He's, he's already around when we get into verse three, or chapter 3 of Genesis. So if God was trying to destroy everything because of Satan, he didn't do a good job because Satan was the only one that survived. Everything else was wiped out. So that kind of doesn't make any theological sense. Later on in, in the chapter, God keeps declaring that things are very good. It'd be kind of odd to have uh, all of these creatures being created on the corpses of all of these other things while God is saying, this is very good. He was talking about the entire creation being very good. And it's kind of hard to do that when you're literally standing on corpses. And then also, part of the reason, like I said, that this gap theory exists to begin with was to try to explain the rock layers and the fossils. So if a gap theorist is using this gap to explain that, well then how do they approach the flood mentioned later on in Genesis? Usually, gap theorists are local flood advocates, which means they don't believe in a worldwide flood. They believe the flood was just localized to Mesopotamia. Um, and so they have to then go and doctor another part of the Bible in order to make this work for them. So to move things along, I'm just going to summarize and say there is zero grammatical, contextual, or theological justification for any kind of gap with a pre-Adamic creation and, and, and corruption and punishment prior to verse 2. Now, what about the scientific evidence? Because, again, this was, this was spurred by uh, scientific evidence, supposedly scientific evidence, that intimidated pastors and theologians during the 1800s. Again, I can't, I gotta be careful how far I go off on this tangent, but I'm just gonna quote a couple of things from Sproul himself in the book. Now, first of all, to give him credit, he does say, I am not persuaded of the truth of the gap theory. So full marks for him on that. And, and, and the reason why I say that is because many times the, theologians, modern theologians who are as popular as Sproul either do not get into this issue because it is a hot topic or they compromise. Because, I mean, you're talking millions upon millions of listeners or readers or whatever. You get into this. The only one that I know of that's brave enough to get into this is John MacArthur. Uh, which, which I know that the, the pastors here mention, uh, have mentioned before. John MacArthur is a pretty well-known theologian, and he'll get into this, and he, he has a very young earth creationist perspective on this. But at least Sproul is not uh, going to give the gap theory any, any credit. But elsewhere in his chapter, he does say some things that kind of, I kind of wish he would have worded better. He says the gap theory, he's talking about the history of the gap theory, why it came to be. He says the gap theory 
is attractive to many because it offers a way of escape for those who are convinced that the book of Genesis reflects a life situation of relatively recent origin. And this is where I, I don't really like where he goes with this. As opposed to scientific theories and evidence that the universe is billions of years old. I know he's not really saying this, but the way he's wording this makes it seem like he is acknowledging that there is evidence that the, that the universe is billions of years old and su sufficient enough evidence to scare people into this way of thinking. He also mentions elsewhere in another paragraph, he talks about the tension between science and religion. And I don't like that either because there is no tension between science. Well, there's no tension between science and God's word. I'll put it that way. And then he kind of summarizes everything. He just says, well, however we are to understand the first part of verse 2, and then he just moves on. And maybe I'm being petty, but I really would have liked it if he would have had a hard-line stance on this and said, no, this is the one way to interpret it. But I, I, I get a little bit worked up about this topic, maybe more so than a lot of other people do. So, again, he's not, he, he admits he does not follow this, but I kind of wish he would take a little bit more of a hard-line stance. So, again, I can't go too far down this rabbit hole, but I will summarize this by saying there is absolutely no scientific empirical data that mandates a universe older than 10,000 years old. And that is an extremely bold statement, especially for somebody who's trained as a scientist. If I was to say this at a secular university or, or college when I was trying to get my degree, I would have been laughed out of the whole place. So I admit, the majority of, the majority of scientists, uh, especially those that are out in the secular world, they absolutely would laugh at this because they believe in a universe that's about 13 billion years old. Uh, and the Earth is about four and a half billion years old. And I'm claiming that there's zero evidence of that. I actually put 10,000 just to be a little bit less narrow on this. I actually, my, my own personal estimate is anywhere between six and 7,000 years is what we're looking at for the age of the earth. Um, but you can conservatively say 10,000. There's definitely no evidence of that. Now again, I can't even go down this rabbit hole. So. Good news and bad news. I can't talk about it now, but as Mark said, uh, you know, shameless plug for my Bible study coming up in April. Uh, we're going to go over this in a lot of detail. It's a DVD series. Um, if you know who Del Tackett is, he did the Truth Project. Uh, he interviews paleontologists, geologists, biologists, astronomers, Hebrew scholars, a lot of well-educated individuals on this topic, and they show kind of, for those of you that, that are not into this topic, some of the stuff that they show will shock you, and some of the stuff that they show that secular scientists are willing to admit in publications is extremely shocking in terms of, like, how do people even still believe in evolution based on what they're discovering? So... We'll have plenty of time to finish the DVD series, and then we have, I think last time I did it, we have like one or two weeks just to do follow-up questions with all this stuff, because it does go pretty fast. Um, but I usually will stop at the end of each interview section, and we'll talk about it. So uh, this is a great series if you want to look at the actual scientific evidence for a young, not just a young Earth, but a young universe as well. that fits within the biblical time frame. All right. That was, I don't know how long, a long time, and I haven't even mentioned the Holy Spirit yet. So we gotta get going. Told you I could be long-winded on this, but Sproul brought up the gap theory, so I'm like, all right, I guess I'll talk about the gap theory. All right, so one of the things that we see, last week Russell talked about the Trinity, and that is not a topic I wanna get into. I'm a scientist, I like to talk about absolutes, and the Trinity is just one of those mysteries uh, that, that's just really hard to get your head wrapped around. But one of the things that we see in the creation event is that God, the triune God, he is creating through what we call a divine imperative, or another way to say it is fiat creation. Fiat just means to be, right? God says, all he does, he just says, let there be, right? It doesn't mention God, you know, getting his hands brushed off and, and getting in there, rolling up his sleeves. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, let there be. Only God has that power. So not only did he create time, space, and matter, he did so with just the power of his voice. And so fiat creation is the way that God creates. And now if we look 
at John chapter 1. We see the very first verse of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we see that through, kind of through implication. If you look further on into John 1, 14, it said the Word became flesh. So Jesus is the Word that has become flesh. And so perhaps during creation, I think there's enough scriptural uh, evidence to kind of suggest that, that God is creating through this divine imperative and the, the voice that is speaking, let there be, I believe that's Jesus himself. He is, God's, he is the word. And so we have Jesus' role that's kind of fleshed out here. But what about the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is kind of like the executive member of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is basically God in action, as we'll see. And we, we can kind of see that. The, the, only, the only individual, of the, or the only person of the Trinity that we see specifically mentioned here is the Holy Spirit. He is the executive. He is getting things done during this process. I guess you could say, you know, this is not, not strict theology, but if you want to, for lack of a better term, he's the one getting his hands dirty in this process. All right, so I want to focus in on this part of verse 2. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. This is really the only part that specifically mentions God the Holy Spirit in this. We can look later when we talk about the creation of man. We can see something here. But I'll admit, I could, I could talk for hours on creation. But when I was asked to teach this and I was told I need to stay within the lanes on this topic alone, I'm like, that's, that's half of one sentence. You want me to draw that out for an hour? Like, there you go. He was moving over the surface of the waters. I'll take questions. Like, so I guess we got to camp out on this. What, what, is he, what is exactly happening here? So this word moving, ra'af. Again, we got to get into the Hebrew here. There's a couple of different ways, at least that the NASB Bible will translate this word. Tremble, shake, flutter, hover, moving, brooding. Who, who's got different ways in which this is translated? So I have, for me, in the NASB, it's moving. Who's got some, something else? Hovering. Hovering. Anything else? Moving and hovering. That's generally what I say. I, I pulled out every translation that I have at home. And I, I pretty much saw, and I actually went to Bible Gateway, and there's like a drop-down box. I just went through every translation, and pretty much every single one of them that was not just a paraphrase said either moving or uh, hovering. Right? But if you see up here, this breakdown shows moving, tremble, hovers. Now we're just going to quickly look at the other. There's really only, uh, I believe, two other places in the Old Testament where this, this word is used at all. Um, so we're just going to go ahead and, and just kind of, um, through process of elimination, get rid of the one that, the translation that probably doesn't fit here. Uh, the tremble and the shaking. If we look in Jeremiah 23, 9, it says, as for the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones tremble. So there's that word there. That's the same Ra'af word. I have become like a drunken man, even like a man overcome with wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. I don't believe that the tremble is the best way to translate this. And, and clearly none of the translators that any of you have believe that to be the case either. And so shake and flutter is kind of the same, just different, a uh, different version of those words. Um, another one that, that Sproul kind of talks about is the brooding. Um, and he gets that from this. There's some versions that have used the term or, or at least thought of the term in, uh, as brooding. Like an eagle, we're in Deuteronomy 32, 11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers or off over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. And so this word sometimes is, sometimes is rendered... Um, Brooding. But when we look at brooding, right, an eagle brooding, usually that's just over the eggs. You brood over the eggs. Once they hatch, you don't really consider what the eagles do as brooding over them. So that's kind of probably not the best term there. And then the only other brooding that I can think of as a biologist is there's fish that do what's called mouth brooding, where they'll keep the eggs in their mouths, and then when the eggs hatch, they'll keep the baby fry, the baby fish in their mouths, but that's weird. I, don't, I really don't think that that's what the Holy Spirit was doing. Um, 
So brooding probably is out. I, I, again, brooding, depending on how you use the term, maybe. But obviously, hovering and moving uh, is the best. So, so then what does that mean? What exactly was the Holy Spirit doing when he was hovering over the waters? Now again, the waters were created on day one. The, the waters that the earth is. Now there's no way to tell if that's all that the earth was. Maybe there was you know, rock and dirt and stuff under the water, but that's all speculation. We really don't know. Right, the, the word, like when, when I read on, on day three what happens and, and God caused the dry land to appear, I imagine dry land coming up and out of the water. That's just what pops into my head. So I would imagine that that material existed under the water, but the Bible's not clear on it, so I don't want to speculate too much further on that. So preserving. What do we mean by preserving? Well, remember towards the beginning I mentioned that chaos did not exist prior to the creation because there is nothing to be chaotic. However, now, right here at this moment on day one, we do have something that could, if God was not upholding it, go crazy. And so I believe one of the things that uh, the Holy Spirit was doing was kind of just keeping the waters in order, right? He has yet, the creation week is when God is setting down all of the scientific laws and principles that our universe operates under now. So we can't go to day one and expect all of these things to be working because God's not finished yet. And so if we imagine God just kind of creating this ball of water and then turning his back on that, everything would just go crazy. So yeah, there's a certain element here of just keeping the things that he is making from going crazy until he is finished setting up the laws that, upon which they will operate, the physical laws of the universe. So he's preserving the waters here. And we're, we're going to look at this a little bit uh, towards the end. God's presence, the Holy Spirit specifically, his presence sustains his creation. Is anybody familiar with the concept of a deist? Does anybody know what a deist is? What's a deist? They just believe that there's a God. Right. But then what, is God, what, did, God, what did God do? He just... He basically just created everything and said, all right, I'm done, and he, he walked away. I believe if God really did that, the entire universe would just cease to exist. God is physically upholding everything. One of the things that, you know, when you go to school and you're in science for so, so, many, so many years and you're learning about all these things, I know, Dr. Mayer, you, you and I had a, does anybody else have any kind of medical background or science background? Right, so a couple of you. Have you ever experienced a time when you're sitting there listening to lectures about how the world operates and you start getting a panic attack because you're like, this is so complicated. If just one thing was to stop working, like when I learned about certain aspects of anatomy, I'm like, there are about a billion ways for my body to stop working. <laughs> like it starts freaking you out. And so, um, you know, especially if you guys are germaphobes, take a, take a microbiology class and you will either be cured of your microbiology or your, of your germophobia or you will just live in a, in a plastic bubble the rest of your life. There are so many things, so many ways for your body to stop working. How do we even exist? And in fact, what's amazing is when I taught, uh, I didn't teach, but when I worked at uh, what is now Florida Southwestern, it used to be called Edison, there was this old professor who was just, you know, stereotypical evolutionary professor. He taught geology, and he, one day he was staring at a poster presentation on the, uh, the plant cell, and he just sat there and stared at it forever, and he said, I've come to the conclusion that life is impossible. <laughs> and I said, I would agree with you. Here's a DVD. Why don't you go watch it? And I gave him, a, gave him a, a, an intelligent design DVD. Um, and so, yeah, there's so many different ways that, that all of this could just come tumbling down. It is a house of cards. The Holy Spirit is holding things together. And so that is what he's doing there. He is preserving. The other thing that he's doing is he's preparing. Now, I didn't come up with this, but if Russell were here, his alliteration chops would be flying right now because this is a preserving and preparing. It's about as good as I'm going to do, right? But I didn't make that up. So uh, that's scroll. So maybe, maybe that's where Russell gets it. So preparing, like I said, I don't know exactly what needed to happen with the waters. Um, 
let's be honest, we all know God is powerful enough. He could have created everything completely done, completely finished in a millisecond. Why did God take so long? What was the point in stretching the creation week out to a week in, in the first place? Is there an answer to that? Has anybody ever wondered, why, does, why did God need six days to create? And then he rested on the seventh? What was the point of that? What's that? I'm hearing it. Whoever say, I'm hearing somebody say it. Create a pattern for man. Create a pattern for what? Our work week. The only thing that has no astronomical way of keeping time. Like we can keep track of a day without a watch. The sun rises and the sun sets. You can even tell around the time when noon is. Right? We, we, we track a month with the phases of the moon. We track a year with the passage of the seasons. There is not one thing in nature that shows you how long a week is. A seven-day week is only established by this pattern. All right? So God is, the reason why the Holy Spirit even has to bother with hovering over the waters in the first place is because God, by choice, is stretching this out to give us a, a pattern of the work week. So, as I said, I don't exactly know how this all works, and, and to be honest, as, as, since, I'm, since I'm operating as a scientist uh, under the, the, the way that God has established the laws of science, it's really unfair to try, it's not unfair, it's, it's really kind of impossible to try and figure out scientifically what's happening because the whole, the whole creation week is supernatural. All right, so after that seventh day, then we can start applying the rules of the laws of science. But here, I don't exactly know. He, he was, the Holy Spirit was preparing uh, however the waters needed to be prepared. All right, so the dry land is going to come out of these waters. Life is eventually going to fill these waters. And light is also about to illuminate these waters. So for, for, our, for our benefit, he is stretching this out for a whole day. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So the Spirit of God is, is preparing these waters, hovering over these waters, but then the Spirit of God is also involved in illuminating the uh, creation. One of the things that I want to make sure you guys understand is that, uh, and this is one of the, the big objections that people have when they try to piece together the creation week. Plants were created, uh, first of all, the day, 24-hour day existed prior to the sun. And a lot of people have problems with that because the sun is, has existed since the beginning of humankind, right? The sun existed before Adam was made. So we, our only reference for a day is the sun. So how can we have a day with no sun? Well, the Bible doesn't say that the sun is needed. We don't technically need a sun. We just need light to exist. So God was the source of light, for the days before he created things to bear light for him, right? This is not sun. We made our own, well, made. We, we use what God has given us to make these, we make light out of objects that God has given us. So we don't need the sun for there to be a day. And so we, what we have here is that light is being created. Another thing that sometimes we get sidetracked with is that the Bible's not teaching dualism. Dualism is the idea that you have light and darkness that are evenly matched. This kind of goes back to what I said earlier about chaos, right? Light and darkness being at odds with each other throughout eternity, right? Yin and yang kind of a concept. That is not at all how the Bible describes light. The way the Bible describes light is that when light is on the scene, darkness cannot exist. Darkness has no power over light, right? Not, not just physically, but metaphorically as well. So light pierces and penetrates the darkness. And in fact, God had to separate, it even says it in the reading, God had to separate the, the, the light from the darkness. Because if light was around the darkness, there would be no darkness. So he had to like fighting children, he had to separate them. Because light would win every time. And so the Holy Spirit very likely could have been the, out of, out of the, the, the three persons of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit could have been the one that the light was physically emanating from. And we can take, take this a bit a step further, looking at how the Holy Spirit is the divine illuminator. Physically, as I've mentioned, he's allowing light 
before we have the light-bearing objects created on day four, but also figuratively. Right? He is inspiring scripture, or was when the scriptures were written. And then now, for us, he reveals, and we use the word illuminate sometimes, he illuminates the scriptures for us, helps us to understand it. Without the Holy Spirit's involvement, we could not make heads or tails of his word. He is involved. When we are reading his word, the Holy Spirit is there with us, helping us to understand what it says. So we have physical illumination as well as figurative illumination. And then we have the Spirit as a power source. And this is where we're going to end. This is my, kind of my favorite part because this, uh, being trained as a biologist, this is kind of a fascinating th- way to think here. Um, the Nicene Creed mentions the Holy Spirit as being the life giver. Uh, Zoopoion. Zo, the root word there is where we get the word zoo from. So life giver is what the Holy Spirit is, is mentioned here. And this is the Nicene Creed was 300-something A.D. Um, the, the Constantinople uh, Convention, whatever. So pretty interesting to consider the Holy Spirit as the life giver. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about you know, imagining life existing without God being present. You can't do it. There's so many things, just even on the, the atomic scale. How do atoms, how do electrons, protons, and neutrons even stay together? It's the power of God. And so we take that and we apply it to life. Life requires the Holy Spirit's presence. He is the source and the power of life itself. And it's a little bit different from the role of a believer because we talk about a believer being kind of infused or, or possessed by the Holy Spirit. Right? That was one of the gifts that, that believers were given on the day of Pentecost. So we as believers have the Holy Spirit within us, but even uh, on a broader scale, the Holy Spirit is active even in the lives of non-believers. He is holding physically their lives together, giving them that spark of life, that breath of life. And he also, I mean, apart from the Holy Spirit, we can't know Christ anyway. We can't come to a saving knowledge of Jesus without the Holy Spirit anyway. So even to non-believers, he is holding them together biologically, but he is also bringing them uh, to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If we look at Acts, we can kind of see a glimpse of this. That they would seek God is if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each, each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Now this is Acts 17, verses 27 through 28. This is Paul speaking. Does anybody know who Paul is speaking to at this moment? It is Mars Hill, so the Greeks. He is not speaking, because when I first read this out of context, context is big, uh, when I first read this out of context, I'm thinking, well, is Paul just speaking to Christians? Because... For in him we live and move and exist. Is that just for Christians? No, because he's speaking to non-Christians. He's speaking to um, people that don't even know God. This is the the famous uh, speech on Mars Hill where he's saying, hey, there's a God out there. There's one God, and let me tell you about him. And so he's speaking just about the fact that God is who gives all of creation life. Let's go back to Genesis, because I did say we're going we're gonna to look at day six, the, the creation of Adam, man, it's, man, it's himself. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So, again, this is one of those things that I never really thought too much about until I started doing the, preparing for this Bible study. Is that what is the breath of life? So, we have Neshamah, once again, we got some Hebrew here. Breath of life, that's, what, that's how that would translate. It can be translated as breath, but it can also be translated as spirit. So we have breath of life and Holy Spirit being linked with this same Hebrew word. And so, you know, God formed Adam physically. He's there, but he was inert. He, he wasn't living yet. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit 
through the breath of, breath of life was infused into Adam that all that inert clay, fancy clay in the form of cells actually started living, right? So instead of, instead of you know, in, in fantasy novels when we see you know, just a corpse being electrocuted to life in the story of Frankenstein, um, we see here this, these, this inert mass matter that we're made out of requires the Holy Spirit to be, infuse it in order for us to even live. Also, the Spirit powers all forms of life, not just us, animals, plants, microbes, everything, uh, all of creation. We see in Psalm 104, 27 through 30, they all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to the dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face uh, of the ground. So we can see here in Psalm and then also in Isaiah 32, 15, until the spirit is, is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fertile field and the fertile field is considered as a forest. So let's summarize. The Holy Spirit executed God the Father's will and God the Son's divine imperative at the creation week. Specifically, the Holy Spirit hovered and moved over the unfinished creation, preserving it and preparing it. The Holy Spirit now continuously powers and sustains his creation. Not just holding the atoms of the universe together, but also giving life to otherwise inert clay. He gives the breath of life. He keeps the matter and energy in order. So a couple of, uh, a couple of quotes from a, from a book about the Holy Spirit specifically, a different book. As a result of the Spirit's energy, the beauty of the earth, the glory of the sky, and the wonders of the oceans came into being. The Spirit created the world, created man, and beautified the heavens. He brings death upon it and brings life into it. And with that, I didn't go over. I'm impressed. <laughs> Almost. Um, yes? Uh, is the soul the same as the Holy Spirit, or how is it different? Uh, there's two different ways you can look at it. There, there's what you have, a soul, and then you have a spirit. Humans, we have an eternal spirit. We will continue to exist uh, forever. Like, from the moment that we are created, forever. We will exist. Um, this is generally where you get into the, the tough topic of, will my dog be in heaven waiting for me? Animals can have a soul in the sense that certain animals have enough of a personality uh, to where you can consider them to have a soul. They're not, just, they're not just robotic, right? So if you look at an ant or a scorpion or something like that, they're, they're alive, but they don't have emotions. You can't make an, an ant sad. They're almost just kind of biological robots. But you can definitely make a dog sad, we can definitely see that as an emotion with them. Same thing with higher, other higher mammals. Um, elephants, dolphins, killer whales. Uh, you can see kind of a sense of mourning and loss throughout their lives. So God, God kind of has certain tiers. He doesn't specifically mention this, but you can kind of see just by studying nature, you can see that God has designed some creatures to be able to have that emotion. So you could say that they have a soul uh, whereas maybe an ant doesn't, but they don't have an eternal spirit. We are the only ones that have that eternal spirit because we also have, uh, we have the free will um, and we, we are made in the image of God, which I think that's kind of where that question, you can go with that question. Part of the image of God isn't, really the image of God doesn't have that much to do with our physical appearance, has to do with our nature. And so some of that could definitely be the spirit's influence there but it's not really a topic I've gone, I've studied too much myself, so I would be going down some speculative territory. Um, plus, I'd probably need another hour. <laughs> so, yeah. I would say that we definitely, 
having a spirit at all is the result of the Holy Spirit's influence on us as individuals.